You are listening to Nolympia on NetNet Radio. Baby. 
Mercedes man, gentleman, riding on my dick like driving a Mercedes Benz. It's a luxury, but yes, I am a porn star, so you can't ride for free. The dick of Satan is red with the red leather harness, and it curves upright, reaching exclusively for the G spot. I got a mean stroke, hated evilly, and then I smoke ash the blunt in your mouth. Fucking in a black cloak, satanic sex, black magic tricks. I fuck you and I manifest. He a magician, he got the magic dick. Hear the demons chanting, I got next BDSM shit. Sadistic, I flog you while cracking whippets. I whip you till you screaming, crying, sobbing. I'm not stopping till I hear the safe word, and that's sanctuary, bitch. I'm bucking on all the Fairies, goblins, elves, dragons, demons writing in their diaries, praying the vampire slay them, eat the bussy disrespectfully, give some sloppy toppy to pay respects to me, I'm your favorite fucking G.
This program is hosted by No Olympics LA, a coalition of grassroots organizations fighting against the 2028 Los Angeles Olympic bid and the evils of the Olympic Games. You can find us on social media at No Olympics LA and check out our website at noolympicsla.com to learn more. We recorded a podcast series called Rings of Hell in 2018 with our friends at Knock.LA, dedicated to demystifying the Olympic grift. Today, we'll be playing Episode 8, The Exploitation Olympics. The Olympics pose monumental risks to everyone unfortunate enough to be in their orbit. And this is true especially for workers, either workers who help make the games happen in construction, service industry, volunteers, to the athletes themselves. Labor exploitation and the Olympics are synonymous, and we've charted this history of rampant harm, everything from wage theft to psychological, emotional, and sexual abuse, even the beloved 1984 games. Did you know following the games in 1984, 12 minority firms filed a lawsuit against the LA Olympic organizers and won $17 million in damages for contract violations? They were given exclusive Olympic contracts to sell souvenirs and claimed organizers didn't abide. In typical Olympic fashion, they tried to silence with an army of lawyer fees, increasing their expenses so much that the black, Latino, and Asian businesses would drop their cases. They did not. Fast forward to the present times. We all know what happened with Larry Nasser and his years of abuse at USA Gymnastics. New reformer CEO Lili Lung has repeatedly said athlete safety is a priority. So then why, since filing for bankruptcy in December of 2019, 
as USA Gymnastics accumulated nearly $12 million more in legal fees than it has spent on safe sport. The management consulted PR finesse program meant to keep athletes safe in sport. Safe sport is a sham created by top consulting firms to protect the Olympic brand. USA Gymnastics is spending millions of dollars in bankruptcy to avoid paying damages to survivors. It's despicable, but it's the Olympic way. For episode 8 of the Rings of Hell podcast, we're joined by members of DSA Los Angeles' Labor and Healthcare Committees to explore how the Olympics are always sold as being good for labor, while the receipts show the reality couldn't be further from the truth. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Once we make our way through these Rings of Hell episodes, we'll go on weekly journeys to various Olympic host cities to explore the real cultural impacts of the Games with interviews, music, art, and more. We're hard at work putting these exclusive episodes together, so stick around because we'll start airing those next month here on NetNet Radio. But first, enjoy Episode 8 of Rings of Hell, the Exploitation Olympics. This is Rings of Hell, a Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history, impact, and possible future of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And you can tell what's going on because if you look at that, if you'd say, if you were a business person that had to answer to shareholders, would you do a deal this way? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing it if you are, are in charge of taxpayer money. Because you would not do that if you're a business that had to account to shareholders for the profits of this enter- enterprise you're entering into. You would have contracts, you would have lawyers looking over everything, you would have budgets, and you would be holding their feet to the fire. So this whole idea that we're going to go ahead and sign on to the Olympics and we'll figure out the details later, don't bet on the details being in your favor. Never in labor's favor. Episode 8, The Exploitation Olympics, The Athlete and Worker Abuse Epidemic. Hi, um, so on this episode of Rings of Hell, we are going to be talking about uh, labor abuse and athlete abuse and exploitation around the Olympics. Uh, I'm Anne, I'm the co-chair of the No Olympics LA Working Group, uh, and I have here with me Claire and Paula. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Claire. I'm a member of the LA chapter of DSA, and I do work in the healthcare committee, focusing specifically on reproductive justice, and I'm a member of No Olympics. Hi, my name is Paula. Um, I'm also with DSA LA, the labor subcommittee. Um, I was born and raised in the Valley, so I'm a native, now living in Koreatown, and um, working uh, in law. So I got asked to be here because of my background in labor law. So on this episode, uh, what we basically wanted to focus on was so two of the groups that the Olympics are supposed to be quote unquote good for. Um, these are kind of, you know, in popular imagination, the people who are some of the direct beneficiaries of the game. So uh, the first group is local workers in host cities. Um, there's this idea that the Olympics help boost the local economy and they bring jobs and it's a it's a big boon for everybody. Um, and then also the second group are athletes themselves and looking at athletes as workers uh, and how that 
you know, how the Olympics actually hurts them as as workers. Um, even, and this is similar kind of to the other aspects of our platform, um, even when the games go quote unquote well, even when they are a disaster, aren't a disaster, um, our sort of thesis is that the, the games are pretty much designed to exploit and abuse everyone who comes into contact with them, um, including the people that they supposedly help. So including workers and residents of host cities and the athletes themselves. So... To start it off, I uh, wanted to you know, dig into um, labor abuse and worker exploitation in particular and talk about what kind of context does the, do Olympic Games and mega events actually create for local workers? Um, actually, in uh, California, we have a lot of labor abuses as it is. Um, California in general has a lot of wage and hour abuses, a lot of wage theft. Um, our labor commission is good about um, taking complaints, but they're backlogged at all times, um, and uh, basically the more power you have, the more political pressure there is to get anything done, the more it just needs to be done, needs to be done, the more you see labor exploitation and abuse. Um, and uh, the other thing you see with events uh, very often is entities that spring up specifically for that event. So if you want to protect your corporate entity, um, you just set up another entity that will hire these people, go bankrupt. Um, by the time the Labor Commission catches up with all the wage and hour abuses or the um, discrimination or anything else that's going on, they are long gone, dissolve the entity, and there's nobody to pay them back. That doesn't mean that happens every time. Um, there are abuses that get paid off, but the, the pattern is not a good one overall. The more uh, there is pressure to get something done, the more there the the country, the state, everybody's reputation is on the line, the more there is just a pressure to get it done cheaply. The other thing that worries me is this whole narrative that's going on about it not costing us anything. Um, That's honestly ridiculous. (laughs) I was around actually in the last Olympics. I was 19 in 1984. And um, you can't tell me that those facilities are still in uh, pristine Olympics ready condition. So on the one hand, they'll say, well, this is a good thing because it means we'll hire all these workers to refurbish them. On the other hand, if they're saying it's not going to cost money, they're not budgeting money for that. So how do you refurbish them? Labor exploitation. Right. Yes, that's something we've seen. Um, You know, so we work and are in contact with a lot of the other uh, anti-Olympics resistance movements from around the world and something that we've seen happen in pretty much every other city. You know, as budgets balloon, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure to keep uh, to keep costs down to to keep these like rising, you know, cost overruns, basically, uh, you know, to keep them either stable or not from expanding quite as massively. Uh, and of course, where do those cuts come from? Correct. They don't generally come from materials because those people uh, have political connections. Right. <laughs> so they come from labor because they can exploit people that don't have political connections. Um, another thing that we've learned since we this sort of happened after we started this campaign is we know that Olympic Games are an opportunity for uh, local politicians to raise their profile and run for national office. That's something we saw in the 2002 Olympics with Mitt Romney that preceded his and was kind of used as the basis for his presidential run. Um, and we know our mayor, Eric Garcetti, that you know the Olympics are very much sort of designed to be a feather in his cap to run for higher office, whether it's for U.S. Senate or for a future future presidential bid. 
Um, and we, when we first started this campaign, we mainly imagined that the way that that worked was it just raised the national profile of the politician. Something that we learned um, actually weirdly from an essay, an article written by Ronald Reagan's son, Ronnie Reagan, is that another way politicians use the Olympic Games to kind of proceed um, a major campaign for higher office is it creates an opportunity for them to award out a lot of contracts nationally. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of that can sometimes work in terms of hurting local workers when there's an incentive for a politician to uh, award contracts, not necessarily to um, for the benefit of the city and workers, but for their own, you know, their own political ambitions. Well, I think you can see just in general how this works when you have, um, for example, one of the big ones going on now is the pipeline projects. Um, and you see a lot of uh, hubbub about how they're going to bring jobs. And, and honestly, they do bring some jobs. You know, some people will lay pipe for a while. Um, and then there will be a whole lot of costs that are absorbed by the local people. So, um, and even then, you'll see that those jobs may be local people or they may be bringing people in for them. And honestly, the it's it's common sense that what they're going to do is they're going to bring in people for those jobs or give those contracts to people that benefit them. So if it's cheaper to get people from outside, they'll get people from outside. If it's more expensive to get people from outside, but it gets them political capital, they'll get people from outside and get political capital. Um, Or the combination of getting people from outside for the political capital And then when that causes overruns on their budget, they get local people that they can get cheaper. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a combination of whatever works for them politically and cost-wise, but the overarching theme is always that the people with the connections do make out okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're a political entity, if you are somebody that is a big donor, um, then your corporation, your materials provider, your people will do okay. Your union may even do okay with getting some jobs on a temporary basis. And then everything else will be left for the city of Los Angeles and its taxpayers to figure out. And all of the other stuff that needs to be done once all the glory and the money is passed out will be done however it needs to be done, by exploitation, by cutting corners, um, whatever it takes. You see the same thing in other kinds of productions where they will um, try to get around earthquake code. They will, you know, get around building problems. They'll get around whatever they need to do. Um, If they have traffic problems, it'll be the mom and pops that bear the brunt of it. If they need to build buildings, it will be the the ones on the margins that are displaced from their homes. Um, Whatever they need will get done and they will always say well we already signed this contract we need to get this done we can't be embarrassed in front of the whole world so you just have to go along Mm -hmm. especially if it hasn't been spelled out in advance how they're going to get this done right i think that's something a lot of people aren't aware of is that um as much as mayor garcetti or anyone on the bid committee can kind of pay lip service to working with local labor union labor none of that is spelled out or guaranteed it's something that they can say they intend to do, but at the end of the day, no paper has been signed saying that they're committing to that. And you can tell what's going on, because if you look at that, if you'd say, if you were a business person that had to answer to shareholders, would you do a deal this way? 
If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing it if you are, are in charge of taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. Because you would not do that if you're a business that had to account to shareholders for the profits of this enter- enterprise you're entering into. You would have contracts, you would have lawyers looking over everything, you would have budgets, and you would be holding their feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea that we're going to go ahead and sign on to the Olympics and we'll figure out the details later, don't bet on the details being in your favor. Mm-hmm. Never in labor's favor. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's been one of our key takeaways from everything is is why would we ever assume that any of the people who who are already failing to protect labor, to protect the working class, to protect people who are vulnerable and marginalized in our city, whether it comes to labor exploitation, displacement, gentrification, policing, why, why would we trust any commitments that they make about the Olympics and how they will or won't exacerbate these things? Um, another thing I want to touch on before we talk about athletes is um, is basically volunteer labor exploitation. That's something we're seeing. We've seen in a lot of past Olympics. We're seeing kind of um, crest in Japan right now as they're putting out calls for just massive amounts of volunteer labor, largely as a response to the fact that the uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics are already massively over budget, like several billion dollars over budget. Um, several years out. And so first of all, you know, just noting that one of their key responses is to cut funds by asking for more volunteer labor rather than cutting um, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, which plans and is the the supreme authority of the Olympic movement in their own words um, includes people like Henry Kissinger, uh, a lot of royal members of the, the British and, you know, various like Scandinavian um, you know, royal families, they, so people who are already extremely wealthy and privileged, they get up to like a $900 per diem um, to attend the games. So Henry Kissinger gets more money to fall asleep in the stands. There are a lot of pictures, if you Google image search, pictures of him at the Olympics, he's always passed out. Uh, He gets more money to sleep in the stands than most athletes do to compete, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But that that has not been considered as a fun as a, a line item that can be cut. So instead, they're looking to volunteer labor. Um, most recently, the Tokyo Olympic organizers are now asking translators to volunteer their time. Um, so I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as sort of a you know how volunteer and kind of like unpaid internship type exploitation works in LA already, and what we might expect to see with an LA Olympics. Well, and, and actually, um, California has pretty good labor laws um, c- uh, in comparison to the rest of the country. Um, but again, there there will be carve outs for volunteers. And, and that's just the same story we were talking about. Like, Henry Kissinger doesn't need $900 per diem. He, he literally could volunteer and he'd be perfectly all right. Um, but on the other hand, they're not going to pressure him to show up for free. Mm-hmm. And even if he shows up, he doesn't have to do any actual work. They will be pressuring the translators, the the cleaners of stadiums, the you know the timekeepers, the timekeepers, the whoever else they can um, they can get to to do their work for free. Uh, my daughters uh, were in swimming for a while, and just being a parent of a swimmer, you would have to do everything for free because. But in that case, you know, our swim club wasn't making a whole lot of money. But that's what they will say is basically this is the model for sports if you really want to make it. Um, and they were taking advantage of parents that just wanted their kids to have a chance in the Olympics. If you get people that are actually in the Olympics and people that get to see the Olympics, there will be so much pressure to 
carve out ways for them to, in essence, have slave labor. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we say we're against slavery, but we already know there are all kinds of ways that we do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But it won't be the Kissingers of the world that are doing right. it. It never is. Right. It won't be Henry Kissinger. It won't be... Um, yeah, it, it won't be any of the Olympic head honchos who basically, the IOC gets all of their airfare comped, they get free hotel rooms. So in addition, on top of the per diem, that's one of the things I've always wondered is this: the host city contract demands that all of those things be covered and be paid for um, as part of the Olympic budget. So it's like, what do they need this per diem for? All of their, <laughs> their private jets and their hotel rooms and their meals are you know, five star meals are covered. What what do they need the nine hundred dollars for other than to pocket it as, and as a symbolic? I I don't know, but um, but yeah, they're asking professional translators to volunteer their time to take six weeks off of work from their paying jobs and just volunteer for the Olympics. And translation is a hard job. Very, yeah, very hard. Um, so that's. Yeah, so, you know, mentioning earlier um, the fact that the IOC members get paid more to watch these competitions than most athletes, I want to move on and talk about kind of the role of athletes in the Olympics because they are also workers. They're they're exploited workers, um, and they are very much viewed by the IOC and by uh, as much as they'll talk about the Olympic ethos and the glory of competition, the people who are organizing these games and making all the decisions um, themselves are not competing, <laughs> you know, uh, they and the athletes are very much treated and viewed as kind of the product, you know, they are the the labor to be sold. It, it, you know, the Olympics, when they generate all this money, all of this revenue, um, it's all being done on the, the backs of athletes largely, right? Like they are this competition, these incredible feats of, of physical strength and grace uh, are are what's being sold and packaged and, and profited off of. Um, but athletes are generally treated very poorly. And so either one of you, whoever wants to jump in, um, I can lead it off. So American athletes don't get paid by definition. Um, A lot of athletes from other countries get sponsored by their governments to compete. Because if you think about it um, at the elite level, right, uh, athletes that are training for the Olympics train all day. They train like eight to 10 hours a day, which means you can't hold down a full-time job. Um, So in certain countries, typically countries with uh, social safety networks and socialized healthcare and things like that, also, um, you know, so first of all, these athletes like have access to those things, even without getting additional funding from the government. They don't need to work full time to have health care per se. We, we don't have that in the U.S., uh, but they're also sponsored by their governments to compete as elite athletes on a world stage. Um, in America, that does not happen. Athletes don't get paid. So what typically happens is, you know, we focus on the the exceptional athletes, right? We, we focus, uh, Mayor Garcetti talks a lot about Venus and Serena Williams. Um, we focus on Michael Phelps. We focus on the handful of athletes who have like major sponsorship deals, who compete in sports that are widely televised um, and are like at the very, very top of their, uh, you know, like the best in a century. Um, So that's a very small sliver of elite American athletes. For the rest of them, and this is something we've learned a lot of uh, from athletes who have competed and spoke out. So like if you're, if you are an athlete um, who competes in a sport that is not widely televised, if you are, for example, uh, if you compete in luge, there are no 
uh, champion, you know, luge Olympic athletes who are on Wheaties boxes. Um, you can be the best, you know, luge competitor in a century and you're not going to be on a Wheaties box, right? Um, so th- you still might get sponsorship deals, but they're just not going to be at the level of like a Michael Phelps. Um, similarly, if you are the fifth best American swimmer in the world, if you are one of, you know, which makes you one of the best athletes of all time, but you're not Michael Phelps, you similarly won't get that level of sponsorship deals. So for those athletes, um, a lot of them struggle financially um, to an extreme degree and live in poverty. There have been a lot of former Olympic gold medalists who have talked about, you know, they had to live out of their cars. There were um, a couple of Olympic athletes, I'm, I'm blanking on which sport, but two of them who also had Hungarian citizenship through their parents and decided after an amount of time to compete for Hungary instead because they could not survive as uh, American Olympic athletes. They said they were living in poverty. They could not get funded. Um, at the, you know That means for a lot of athletes, they are either faced with the choice of like working on top of their grueling training schedule. So a lot of them will just be, you know, compete for eight hours a day and then do like and, and train and then do a second shift where they're like working all night. So that's, you know, that is definitely a form of uh, exhaustion and exploitation that we want to call attention to. Um, in a lot of other cases, too, they will. Uh, this is something we uh, we learned about when we started researching this um, and hearing from some of these athletes. I had not been aware of this before. There's something called the U.S. World Class or the U.S. Army World Class Athlete Program. Um, and this maybe you can talk a little bit, too, about the relationship between the military and labor exploitation, but the the U.S. Army has a program in which they will fund athletes to compete in exchange for service. Yeah, and that's another pattern that you see. We use our military as uh, as basically a labor exploitation thing anyway. Like uh, you go into these communities and you say, join the military and you can afford to be an Olympic athlete. Join the military and you can get job training. Join the military and you can afford college. <laughs> so... Um, and then how that works out on the other end is always, who was it that said like that famous quote about how uh, the America's problem is that we're all temporarily embarrassed millionaires? I think that's like, mm-hmm. you can see that in the athletic realm, you know, like everybody in Hollywood is, you know, going to make it big and so it'll be okay. Um, in athletics, you're going to be Michael Phelps and you're going to be on a Wheaties box and you're going to have all these things and it'll be okay. Um, and they always hold up the, you know, the, the or, you know, you see it in college sports as well. You know, the same thing where they're talking about the exploitation of that labor. There are a lot of people making a lot of money off those kids. Mm-hmm. And then they hold up the handful of people that make it in the NBA and make uh, bazillions of dollars. And we just don't talk about all those people that are thrown to the side, that are, um, their bodies are broken. They've got nowhere to live. Um, you know, there but for the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And as a society, we're so individualistic and so callous and so trained not to see those people even mm-hmm. that we talk about the glory of the Olympics without even giving a thought to how many of these people that like, we know there's a whole bunch of Olympic games, so many that we don't even see them all on TV. And we don't think what happened to those guys. Mm-hmm. And even the ones we did see on TV, how come we never see that person? After the Olympics, what happened to that person? Yeah. 
And um, that actually leads perfectly into the next point I wanted to talk about, which is the level of control that these uh, Olympic governing bodies have over athletes and have over their speech and the level of control that corporate sponsors place over Olympic athletes. Um, so because of the economic exploitation uh, that that happens, that is so rampant within the Olympics and particularly within the U.S., um, you know, I think there's sort of a popular vision of, of athletes are mainly you know, they're workers and then their bosses are the coaches, right? Because the coaches are the ones they work more closely with. But actually, athletes' bosses are the CEO of the USOC and the CEO of USA Gymnastics. These huge, basically, they function like corporations. Um, and so while a lot of these athletes can't afford to eat, you know, a lot of these like gold medal athletes are on food stamps and living in their cars. Uh, the chair of the USOC, I think, made like $200,000. Um, and yeah, and they, you know, they profit tremendously from the labor of, of athletes. And, uh, and they also, they very much, and this is true across the board, not in the US, but pretty much all of these governing bodies regulate and control what athletes say. And one of the ways that they're able to do that is because they have this level of economic leverage over them and over their careers. So this happens, you know, part of the reason we see so few athletes speaking out is they get very harshly punished if they say anything even remotely critical of these governing bodies. And it's a monopoly level of power. So you can't just ditch that boss to go to somewhere else to be an Olympic gymnast. I guess unless you've got dual citizenship. This is something that this is uh, this was a scandal and they've since, I think, started to at least superficially address this. But something important to point out is that for a long time, the standing policy of the USOC, which I should mention is the U.S. Olympic Committee. So that's the United States arm um, of the that's an Olympic organizing body. Uh, so they award at twenty five thousand for gold medals, fifteen thousand dollars for silver medals and ten thousand for bronze. Think of the years of work. Yes, and then the, and then the policy too is for a long time they used to tax it, so you would also get taxed on top of that. So if you were an athlete who was living in poverty, struggling to to pay for your equipment, for your training, for your flight to these international cities to compete, and then you get let's say best case scenario you win, you get twenty five thousand dollars, and then that's tax and you actually wind up owing the U.S. government more money than you have. And the per diem was $900 a day. Mm -hmm. So like if you do really well, you can um, make about as much for a lifetime as work as some idiot got for his per diem for one Olympics to sit on his ass. Okay, that's great. (laughs) Wasn't aware. (laughs) Not surprised. Wish I could be. If you're on the U.S. gymnastics team, what your gold medal money goes to paying Gloria Allred for your lawsuit? Like... Um, yeah, and that actually segues nicely into the next, uh, and I think the the last um, thing we want to really delve into, which is the rampant sexual abuse that has been recently, um, you know, has like come to light uh, in recent months, um, particularly within gymnastics, but then increasingly in so many other sports, including taekwondo, swimming, judo, uh, and you know, part of the reason that we wanted to lead into it by talking about the the economic exploitation and just general control over athletes is that 
um, we believe that this really creates a breeding ground for those types of abuses and then for silence. Um, so that, Claire, if you want to talk a little bit about that, we recently worked on a statement um, from the No Olympics Working Group and a number of our coalition partners uh, about this. So, I mean, I think that I think that beyond like I don't want to say beyond sexual abuse, but I think that. Um, you know, something we've been talking about with labor exploitation, it, um, you know, it's always, it's about the body. And um, there's so many different ways that the athletes competing in the Olympics um, have their bodies exploited just beyond the, the you know, extraordinary amount of training and, and uh, dieting and whatever to get them, themselves, even if they're already, you know, you look at Venus and Serena, like, they are clearly, like, exceptionally talented uh, tennis players, especially Serena. I mean, she's, like, arguably the best living athlete right now. Um, so so between the girls that were, I believe it was over 145 girls who testified um, against Larry Nassar, um, and, I mean, even just, this is, we're recording this in the middle of August, and just two days ago, the fifth member of the Fierce Five, uh, Kyla Ross, came out and said that she was abused by Larry Nassar. Um, another uh, gym- gymnast, Madison Koshin, who won gold, a team gold and a silver for uneven bars uh, in 2016 in Rio, she also came out against Larry Nassar, and he's already been uh, convicted. Um, and so I think, you know, aside from the fact that this is an extraordinary, like, endemic, serial, ca- like, case, it's not isolated, but it's not the only way that these athletes are having their bodies sort of put on display. I mean, you look at, like, aesthetic sports, like figure skating, like, two very young girls who were like big competitors in 2014, uh, one from Russia and one from the U.S., they both uh, tapped out of Pyeongchang because they're like they were physically incapable of competing because um, their anorexia and bulimia were so bad. Um, It's it's pretty grim. Yeah, I think that's there's a lot of sort of like cultural tie-ins too. So bringing up also the, you know, uh, eating disorders are very common among elite athletes and and the female athletes in particular, Um, you know, and so you build in all of these layers, right? The fact that culturally um, women typically are not given a lot of autonomy over their bodies or conditioned to think that they can speak up when something is bothering them. Um, The fact that these athletes are very much conditioned to sacrifice their bodies, to push their bodies to the extreme, um, to listen to authority, to listen to their coaches, uh, to listen to the these sports executives are told that they'll be punished if they speak out. So um, one example of how like Olympic governing bodies punish athletes, a number of Korean athletes were recently sanctioned by the governing body for their sport in Korea. And I'm blanking on which sport it is now, but for they some of them tweeted that they were unhappy with how the trials were conducted for the Olympics, and so they were sanctioned for that. Um, so athletes are pretty much taught you can't speak up for yourself, you can't do this. So it really doesn't come as any surprise that young women who were abused by a, an authority figure who was close to them would be afraid to speak out. You know, that was something that 
I was thinking about during uh, the Nasser trials was was what would this have looked like if they had even just been able to request their own doctors? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, another thing like that goes into it being about like uh, your body you are also unless you are a Gabby Douglas or a Michael Phelps like you're essentially like a proxy for your home country and I think one of the things that 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 sort of nationalism that comes into effect like you're no longer you're not representing yourself you're not representing your own excellence your own uh the, the time and, and effort that you put into conditioning your body and, and doing this thing that maybe you love or don't. And then you look at someone like, you look at the South Korean speed skating team uh, in Pyeongchang this past, the, the past Winter Olympics, um, the speed skating team, I think they won the silver, uh, but two members, uh, they won silver because one member skated a little bit slower. And uh, the two other women on the team called her out uh, in interviews and 600,000, in response, 600,000 South Korean citizens uh, signed a petition demanding that the two women who spoke out uh, be removed from the team. I actually want to like read a couple phrases from this petition because it's really upsetting. It is a clear national disgrace that such people with a personality problem are representing a country in the Olympics. We are petitioning that Kim Bo Rum and Park Ji Woo forfeit their rights as national athletes and be banned from international competitions, including the Olympics. So these were citizens that uh, that that did this. Um, And. the speed skater Kim, she was uh, ultimately hospitalized for anxiety and uh, depression related to the the bullying that uh, came along with this petition. So I think like we I think as Americans, like we know how much nationalism is tied to the bodies of athletes. Like we see that happen in the NFL. We've seen it happen in the NBA. Um, and it just it it expands globally to pretty much anyone competing. I remember listening to some of the um, victim statements on the the Nasser trial and it really hitting me that they would say over and over that their parents even told them what an honor it was that they would see this doctor because he was the best and he was, you know, and the coaches too, there was abuse of the coaches, but they were the best and they could make you an Olympic star and all your dreams were tied into these people. And um, psychologically speaking, that's just a, a recipe for disaster. Um, but there is seen as no other way. And, and like I said, when my daughters were swimming, it's not just at the highest Olympic levels. The whole pipeline was full of the parents would talk about the coaches that had a reputation for getting their swimmers pregnant and who had been called to who among the male swimmers had been called to step up and marry this girl so that it wouldn't get out. Yes. And these are people that are, it's like the Me Too movement where it's its an open secret, but nobody will tell because they try to protect their own children. But at the same time, if they speak out publicly or if they try to do something publicly, then their child's hopes are dashed. And yet at the same time, what hopes are those? <laughs> what hopes are those? What does the Olympics represent? What does it represent, honestly? Yeah. 
Nationalistic abuse? Yeah. Nationalism, corruption, <laughs> uh, militarization. It's, it's crazy when you step away from the commercial and think, okay, what is this about? It's just, yeah. it's insanity. That actually brings me to the last point that I wanted to cover in terms of um, abuse and like below the elite level and in local sports. So there's been a case, um, I guess that's at least in our purview, like semi-high profile, not as nationally high profile as the USA Gymnastics, um, you know, and, and Larry Nasser case. Uh, but there, um, and it kind of ties into you know, the, the conversation around exceptional athletes and Venus and Serena Williams. Um, one of the ways that the bid committee has been selling the Olympics is in terms of what it will do to bring more access to youth sports in Los Angeles. And what does that mean? Um, that was the, the kind of quote unquote legacy of the 1984 Olympics. Uh, and Garcetti will use um, Venus and Serena Williams a lot as examples to say, you know, they learned how to play tennis and Compton on these tennis courts that were partially funded by the LA 84 Foundation. Um, and of course, what he doesn't mention is the fate of the many other children in South LA whose like families were destroyed, whose parents were killed or incarcerated because of the expanded policing that happened around 1984. And what he also doesn't talk about is um, what does it actually look like to participate in youth sports for a lot of uh, kids in marginalized communities in L.A.? Like, what promise does that actually offer? How can that also be a vehicle for potential abuse uh, and exploitation? What does it mean to tell poor children that your only hope at, you know, being safe or helping your family is becoming an athlete? Uh, and in particular, you know, there is a this case in East L.A., um, a gold medal athlete from L.A., Paul Gonzalez, he's a boxer, um, was has been charged and uh, with sexually abusing the students who came to his boxing gym. Um, and just thinking about the context of that, of, of what does it mean to, to use youth sports as an opportunity to kind of create these exceptional figures out of Olympic athletes, um, combined with telling children from these neighborhoods that the Olympics and elite athletes are away, uh, to, you know, a potential vehicle to safety and stability and wealth. Um, yeah, and how does that create a, a another perfect storm for abuse? And on the other hand, we could take this money that we're going to spend on the Olympics and build a hell of a lot of tennis courts, uh, swimming pools, basketball courts, college scholarships, um, give jobs to people that actually need jobs in L.A., maybe raise their pay so that they can live somewhere. Um, you know, so you're saying basically, okay, this is the way to bring people out of poverty is to have this big Olympic spectacle. Instead of saying, uh, you know, with that same amount of money, we could actually bring people out of poverty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and not just Venus or Serena. Like, again, they're holding up the, the ones that, that made it. And we're just going to forget all the rest of them. And honestly, as great as, you know, as Serena Williams is, um, that would be a really shitty investment, all the money that was put into the 84 Olympics to get one athlete like that. Right. So it, it's it's all a, a scam, basically. If you dig past the gold veneer, mm -hmm. it's a scam. I mean, even, like, uh, the... It's a digression, but like if you look at Serena Williams's life since then, like they're like she's 
not given the credit that she's due despite all of her achievements. And also, like, she is now somebody who can also be like a figurehead for how dangerous childbirth is for black women um and she like almost died giving birth to her daughter last year and the only reason why she didn't is probably because she's she has access to good health care either because of her extraordinary talents or maybe just because she's married to the owner of reddit i'm not sure but the point being is like we like her exceptional her exceptionalism also highlights so many things that are wrong with America as a country because you know she her the way her body looks is unacceptable to people her blackness is unacceptable to people the way that she celebrates her uh, victories on the court is unacceptable to people so really in a lot of ways like athletes even when they are doing well are also just like another specter of how messed up America is. She's still a commodity. She's a successful yeah. commodity. Right. But she's still a commodity. Um, well, yeah, this has been great. I want to wrap up on a note of um, of hope and what can we do to to make, you know, to make Los Angeles a better city for workers? How can we support? Um, there's a lot of resistance happening right now and a lot of a lot of things that people are fighting for, both in terms of labor rights, uh, a lot of athletes who are increasingly using their platforms uh, to, you know, be political, to speak out, not just against the Olympic movement, but to speak out against, um, you know, racist policing and, uh, and racism in America in general. Um, what can we do to to get involved and support all of those movements and those people? I think that looks different for every person. But basically, if you see a problem, see what you can do about it. Um, it can be as minute as um, I was walking back to my car at work at late at night, and there were police standing around a, a young black man with guns drawn. And he seemed to be acting out, but it seemed more like a mental illness thing then. And he was unarmed, and he was a distance away from them. And I just stood there and watched. And uh, one of the white police officers came over to me and said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And I said, I'm not, I'm not worried for me. I'm worried for him, and I'm making sure he's okay. Before I walked to my car. I don't know what would have happened, but it made me feel better that I stopped and watched. Um, to... If you know that you're being exploited at a workplace or you have a friend who is, but your your um, documentation status or something else about you or your uh, financial status means that you can take a risk, you'd be the one to, to report it, to speak out. Um, if you've got the time uh, to go march in a protest, go do that. Um, if you've got the time to canvas, go do that. And, and by all means, talk to everybody and anybody that you can about the issues that matter to you because we are in a country where we all just watch the commercial and yet we're good people, good people that if they do stop and think about it and scratch beneath the veneer are, are ready, willing, and able to say, no, that's not right. But we're just walking through life. So talk to people and raise awareness. I don't know, just do what you can. Yeah, I was going to say, like, on top of speaking to people, I think just, like, be a buzzkill to your friends. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, don't, like, I'm, like, a big basketball fan, and I'm a reformed NFL fan, and when people, you know, I think, one, you have to 
it's silly to say hold the media accountable, but when someone says that NFL players are protesting the national anthem, I think you have to turn around and say, no, no, they're not protesting the national anthem, they're protesting during the national anthem, and I think we need to, like, just correct people all the time. Like, that's really what it is. Be a buzzkill. Tell your friends that sports are bad. <laughs> Not that sports are bad, but that, like, I mean, even if they try to come at you, oh, well, what about Christopher Johnson, the Jets interim owner? You know, he's going to absorb the costs if any of the players on the Jets kneel during the national anthem. Remind them that the actual owner is the UK ambassador for the Trump administration. Like, find the holes, be a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah. That's great advice. We love doing that. Um, I'll also, I want to use this as an opportunity to, Claire, to plug the great work that you all have been doing um, on the healthcare committee around crisis pregnancy centers and just... I think that's, you know, to normalize the idea that women should have autonomy over their bodies and reproductive health. Um, I think that's another thing that facilitates abuse in so many ways and exploitation is just the underlying idea that we're, we're just used to being told what to do with our bodies and for our bodies. So if you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing around that, I, I would love for listeners to be able to hear that. Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, right now we're working with uh, NARAL Pro-Choice America and Access Women's Health uh, Women's Health Justice, which is a California-based uh, nonprofit, uh, to create a database of all of the crisis pregnancy centers in uh, LA County, mainly because NARAL admittedly uh, their database is a little bit user unfriendly. So what we're doing is we're going to create a map uh, that's got pinpoints in red and green telling you where the what places uh, are fake and which ones will give you low-cost uh, care. The thing that is uh, really dangerous about the crisis pregnancy centers, one of the things that crisis pregnancy centers are doing to get women in the door is advertising free sonograms and free birth control. And uh, usually the people who are performing the sonograms are not medically licensed. Um, they usually try to do them uh, externally, but um, there are cases where women go in and they are done internally by people who are not medically licensed. So we just want to make sure that people know what they're getting into. And so we'll be making these web this website another bigger resource uh, in the future. And you might find us outside of your local crisis pregnancy center spreading the word. Thank you so both so much for coming in um, and for speaking with us. I think, uh, yeah, this has been really uh, educational for me and helpful for me to sort of be able to connect all these various issues and and see how um, yeah the the exploitation and abuse that local workers are facing are connected to the the issues that athletes themselves are facing and so yeah this has been really great thank you so much again